The uh, title of this message, the second one in our series, is The Babel Effect. This is not the title of some new sci-fi thriller movie, although I suppose it, it could be. But we're going to talk together about causes of disunity in the church and some related matters as well. Um, one doesn't have to look very far to see the evidences of the fragmentation of uh, not only the human family, but the family of God, the church as well. Um, I have a copy of the 1985 edition of the Handbook of Denominations. Um, and uh, so that's 20 years old. But among the Baptists, there's the American Baptist Association, the American Baptist Churches in the USA, the Baptist Bible Fellowship International, the Baptist General Conference, the Baptist Missionary Association of America, Bethel Ministerial Association, the Central Baptist Association, the Conservative Baptist Association of America, the Duck River and Kindred Association of Baptists, Free Will Baptist, General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, General Baptist, General Conferences of Evangelical Baptist Churches, Landmark Baptist, National Baptist Convention of America, National Baptist Convention, and on and on and on and on and on, and Reform Baptist. Yay. Um, among the Presbyterians in 1985, we had listed the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, the Bible Presbyterian Church, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and the Second Cumberland Presbyterian Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, 7401 Old York Road. Hmm, those are the olden days. The Presbyterian Church of the USA, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod before the merger, so they're now part of the PCA and so forth. And among the Reformed, Christian Reformed, Hungarian Reformed, Netherlands Reformed, Protestant Reformed, Reformed Church of America, Reformed Church in the United States, and so on. And now we've got a brand new denomination for those who have decided that the OPC and the PCA are jointly down the tank. Um, but I've already forgotten what it's called. Evangelical Reformed Presbyterian Church? Huh? The Earp Church. I didn't say that. That was, a, that was a comment from the audience. So, disunity is a fact of life. And that's what we want to talk about a little bit now. Let's pray. Lord, as we study your word, we know that some disunity arises from differences, distinctions that you um, ordained for the human race that are not necessarily culpable. Uh, but those and then others do originate in our own sin and uh, animosity, uh, pride as well. And Lord, it's hard sometimes for us to sort out um, just what's what uh, and how different kinds of disunity need to be addressed. And so we pray that in this uh, time you would help us to think through some of these things together and then uh, draw um, some conclusions and some applications. Uh, Lord, we know at, at, um, at best uh, maintaining and, and developing the unity of the church in our experience requires our energetic commitment 
Um, we can't just assume that if we're not fighting with someone at the moment, then there is peace. Uh, so, Lord, grant us your grace to, to grow in these things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk, first of all, about some creational and providential causes for division and separation among human beings. Uh, just sort of thinking about the kind of diversity that arises. And, and as you read through the scriptures, these are often intermingled. And I've just sort of broken them out so that we can... Uh, see them a little bit uh, more starkly, but um, uh, they can't really be uh, isolated from one another. So just to pick a category, geographical separation uh, after the expulsion from Eden. In Genesis uh, chapter 4, verse 16, we read, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then in verse 17, when Cain built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. That's the first reference in the Bible to the geographical dispersion of the human race after the fall. Now, we ought to assume that that would have taken place anyway if the, uh, if the uh, creation mandate had been fulfilled as it was supposed to, then Adam and Eve and their descendants would have um, uh, been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. And so there would have been the dispersal, but obviously this arose in part as a result of the expulsion from the Garden of Eden and then uh, an even further exile, so to speak, or banishment of Cain after he had killed his brother. Um, in Genesis 8, there's a reference uh, to the ark landing on the mountains of Ararat after the flood waters subsided. Uh, and then as uh, Noah's family emerges from the ark and begins life over again, there's a reference in Genesis 9 verse 19 uh, to the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, who, uh, and the people that came from them, and they were scattered over the earth. And so we have these indications in the early chapters of Genesis of the dispersion of the human race into different geographical areas. When you come to the end of that uh, section uh, going up through Genesis chapter 11, there's a reference to Ur of the Chaldeans where um, Abram and his family were from and then the uh, movement uh, toward uh, Canaan, which is the story which is told more in detail in, in chapter 12. And so you have this kind of spreading out. And as people spread out, um, the differences that would uh, characterize a group in a particular region would begin to be distinguished more and more from uh, characteristics of groups. Uh, you know, we're not told um, in Scripture just how and where and under what circumstances racial and ethnic uh, uh, differences began to emerge. They, when they finally come on the scene, they're kind of facts of life, but nobody, uh, the, the scripture doesn't tell us how they all developed, and lots of scholars have their ideas about that. But we can certainly see that the diversity would in part be a reflection of this geographical dispersion. And then uh, we could talk about the familial and maybe uh, eventually ethnic and racial uh, differentiation. Genesis 4 again. Uh, in verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son Enoch. 
And Lamech took two wives, and then it speaks about their descendants. And uh, in that connection, it talks about being the father, Jabal being the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And uh, uh, then Jubal, who was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. And then uh, Tubal-Cain, who was the um, uh, one who forged all instruments of bronze and iron. And so you begin to see, again, the different families uh, being distinguished and differentiated from one another. And then uh, the reference to uh, Eve conceiving another son, Seth, um, and uh, his descendants are identified not by their jobs as much as the fact that they were the people who began to call upon the name of the Lord. Um, Genesis 6, the reference to the... um, uh, sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of man, and you know different people have their views on just what that involved. I, I'm satisfied that that was the the godly line intermarrying with the um, ungodly line, but um, that those distinctions come into play then among the uh, the people of the earth prior to the flood. Uh, when after the flood, when God speaks to Noah and um, tells him to go out of the ark with his wife, again, there to be fruitful and multiply and again fill the earth, Genesis 8, verses 15 through 19. And basically that creation mandate uh, given to Adam and Eve is now um, uh, stated again for Noah and his descendants. And now there is going to be a sense in which that mandate, although under the uh, limitations and curse of sin, is still going to uh, take place. And so in chapter 9, you read uh, about where different people settled and where they lived, and there's names of cities and regions and so on and so forth. So not to spend a lot of time on this, but just to recognize that in in the early history of the human race, there is this growing differentiation as people move apart from one another and families separate, or at least lines of families separate, into different areas. But of course, the big separation comes in Genesis chapter 11 at the the time of the building of the Tower of Babel. And that's, of course, where the the title of this talk comes from, the Babel effect. If you want to look at Genesis 11 a moment, uh, beginning in uh, verse 1, the whole world had one language and a common speech. Uh, So despite the differentiation that had taken place up to that point, there still was this common language and speech. As men moved eastward, they found a, found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may take a, make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they're trying deliberately to resist the providential forces that are moving them away from each other to try and arrest that and still maintain some kind of global community based around their capacities to build cities and cultures and civilizations. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building and the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why 
it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So the real uh, scattering and differentiation was tied up with that um, uh, division of, of language. And when you think about speech and uh, the impact of language upon even how we think, you can see how decisive, uh, far more decisive than simply geographical or even racial distinctions uh, would result from um, the confusion of the languages. Now, the result of all of that then, sort of taken as a whole, is that there is a rich cultural diversity uh, we might even say multiculturalism, except we don't like that kind of language, most of us as uh, conservative types. Uh, racial, tribal, uh, linguistic, cultural differentiation. And the point I want to make is that even though some of these things resulted providentially as judgments upon man's sin, they are not in and of themselves uh, sinful behavior. So although... Uh, let's say, you know, you're going to learn how to speak Spanish or German or, or English, and let's say back in their er linguistic stems, they're part of this division. That was a curse of God upon man's sin, but it isn't sinful in and of itself to speak German rather than English or English rather than French or French rather than, you know, whatever other language it might be. So, so God uses providentially even his judgments to enhance the richness and the diversity of the human family, which means that quite apart from issues related to sin, which we'll come to in a moment, we are faced with the overwhelming potential of human diversity. You just think about people and you have to think about them in terms of their differences as well as their similarities. Even under the influence of the peacemaking, unifying grace of redemption that we talked about in the last hour, there still will be a great deal of diversity in the church universal. And we just need to face that fact and begin to come to grips with it. Even if we're not wasting time and energy sinfully fighting with other, each other over issues, there's a great deal of hard work that has to be done to build the bridges that um, will span the gulfs that come between us, even when we're all behaving ourselves in a very friendly and, and godly way. We, uh, uh, some of us at Bayview last year um, went to the Czech Republic, got the t-shirt, and um, carried on an evangelistic English camp, and these were unchurched, largely non-believing uh, Czech people who were there, uh, but they were very friendly, but I mean, we got a, a, a real daily dose of this matter of wanting to talk to somebody sitting there across the lunch table from you, but not being able to do a very good job of it. And even with our brothers and sisters who are believers in Christ uh, that speak the Czech language, it was very faltering. And of course, you know, the usual American imperialism, we want them to speak English. We don't feel particularly obliged to speak Czech, even when we're in their country. So, well, that's a different issue. Don't get me going on that one. So, when we think about disunity or diversity, let's not only think or think narrowly about sinful divisions. I mean, that's going to be our concentration. But I want us to also see that in the larger context. Though in one sense, and it's often been remarked, though in one sense Babel was reversed 
at Pentecost, uh, where people from various places in the Roman world who had come to Jerusalem and they were, they were hearing God's word, but because of the miraculous gift of the, of the languages, they heard the mighty acts of God proclaimed in their own tongues, and they were amazed by that. So that's a, that's a reversal of, of um, uh, the Babel effect. Yet, in many other ways, things remained largely the same. That wasn't a continuing situation where the church from that day on, everybody could meet, uh, speak miraculously all of the languages of all of God's people throughout all of history. Man, wouldn't that make mission work? Uh, think how many months and sometimes years our foreign missionaries have to devote to language study. I mean, if God had just perpetuated that miraculous gift of different tongues... That would have been a piece of cake, but he didn't. So after that burst of anti-Babel unity, things kind of went back to the way they were before. And um, that leaves the church with uh, a challenge. And that challenge can either be seen and responded to as a threat, or it can be seen and responded to as uh, an opportunity. As you think about the sequel to the day of Pentecost, by the time you get to the, uh, the sixth chapter of Acts, uh, those converts from among the Hellenistic Jews, that is, these were people who had come to faith in Jesus the Messiah, but they were from the Diaspora Jews. They spoke Greek as their primary language. They could be distinguished from the native Palestinian Jews. And what's more, they're not only distinguished, but they could feel slighted as the outsiders within the context of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, there was some concern that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. You know the story. And so men were appointed to try to redress that. Uh, And so, in in a sense, that diaconal ministry arises out of difficulties that manifest themselves along a, a, a linguistic and cultural division. Um, the diversity of the New Testament church, again, you just read the New Testament and you can see it. There's a, there's a church in Jerusalem. There's a church in Antioch. There's a church at Ephesus. There's a church at Corinth. There's a church of the Thessalonians. Uh, and there are even various churches that uh, meet for worship and fellowship in uh, individual homes uh, in Rome or in other places. And so... So that kind of diversity, that kind of um, potential disunity is there all along, and it is a factor to be contended with. But obviously, all of those kind of distinctions become really problematic when sin enters the picture. So we want to talk in the second place about sinful causes of division uh, and separation among human beings. Uh, We can think about the kind of internal divisions, you know, culture Um, is inescapably religious. It is the way uh, a people uh, externalize their most fundamental beliefs about reality. Uh, It's the implementation, if you will, of their worldview. Uh, And therefore, um, many cultures are a reflection of the false religious faith of those cultures and the behavior and the institutions and the practices that flow from those uh, false religious convictions. So we can talk about Buddhist culture that reflects a Buddhist religious mindset or Islamic culture 
Or in the West, we can talk about a secular culture, a culture that externalizes and implements the convictions of a secular naturalism. And maybe as important as these kind of cultural differences, at least for those of us who live in North America, um, is the idea that, or the, the reality that in the modern era, so-called, we are surrounded and influenced by what Francis Schaeffer called the culture of fragmentation. Uh, we all uh, kind of stand back and our heads spin when we think about the rapidity of change. My dad is 92. And uh, when he tells me, as he frequently does, of different recollections of this and that, I mean, he's lived through so many errors in the course of less than a century. Uh, it's just really staggering. For hundreds of years before that, there wouldn't have been such dramatic change, and many people have pointed that out. The instant information overload. Just think of how many emails are racking up in your mailbox while you're up here without an internet connection. I mean, it makes my blood run cold to con conceive of it. Um, the mobility. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we're, we're into the, our children are grown and now we have grandchildren. And many of you have faced the same thing. The, you want those grandbabies right here. But families don't stay in the same place from generation to generation to generation like they have in ages past or in other cultures today. We've got this mobility, and so you get one here and one there and one there. You spend all your time looking for super saver flights uh, to see your grandchildren. Um, and then the loss of the stabilizing influences that um, have uh, helped our society in the past. And so, you know, it, it just often feels for all of us like things are flying apart and we have to do so much to try and maintain some idea that we're in control of our lives that oftentimes other sorts of disunity just have to get pushed on to the side because we're too busy just holding our little worlds together to think about holding the unity of the church together or promoting the unity of the church. So you know, I don't want to be the bearer of terrible, terrible tidings, but best case scenario, folks, we've got a lot of work cut out for us. We are really in a difficult situation. But then there are the external dimensions of this, uh, this kind of sinful orientation as well. The personal sinful attitudes toward other people and other cultures. Think about human pride. Basically, pride can con you know, connect glom onto anything. And so we can be proud of our physical attainments. We can be proud of our uh, mental abilities. We can be proud of this and that and the other thing. You know, I got my car washed before I came up here the other day, and, and uh, next to the car wash, there were all these really sweet cars. By the way, I, yeah, I haven't got my car back. I was actually getting my wife's car washed. Some of you heard that my car was stolen three weeks ago, which it was, and it's still happily stolen. I hope it's running well for whoever has it. But, uh, um, and no, I didn't lose all of my notes for these lectures. I'd love to impress you by saying, oh, yes, I'm just, this is a blank screen. I'm looking at my green. My grandchildren here, but it's not so. I, I had some stuff in the computer, and thankfully the computer wasn't in the car, which it often is when it's sitting outside my office door at the church where the car was stolen from. So anyway, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, I was getting my car washed. So while I'm waiting in line, there's all these really fine-looking cars uh, parked along here, and all of the guys standing next to each other, they had just had their cars detailed, and now they're looking at each other's car, and you could just see them. Say, well, well, look at mine, and you're good. 
And it was kind of interesting. We can even be proud of our vehicles and consider that one car makes us better than someone else. So human pride can attach to anything. And here the idea is we're not only different, but because we're different, I am better. That's the sinful dimension. Recognizing differences and then drawing the conclusion that what I am, what I'm used to, what I like, what I think is preferable, is better. And that kind of pride will and can attach itself to theological and ecclesiastical differences as well. And a lot of us were converted and then we were converted. We were converted from paganism to some kind of evangelical Arminianism and uh, and then we were converted from that into the Reformed faith. And as we emerged into the sunlit highlands of the Reformed faith, we look back at our former self and everyone who still thinks the way we used to think when we were our former selves. And we were proud. Now, then we read Calvin and we found out that Calvinist theology should humble human pride. But that wasn't our first response. Boy, now I've got it and they don't. My theology is better than them. Uh, or ecclesiastical differences. You know, some people, I don't know where they get this idea, but um, you know, they, they think that Orthodox Presbyterians are kind of snobbish. They're kind of standoffish. They just don't think that other churches are quite as good as they are. Where does that come from? Do you ever act that way? Oh, yeah, I guess so. You know, the pride behind the theology, the pride behind the, the ecclesiology, that's, uh, that's the monster that doesn't always rear his ugly face. And so we think, well, no, they're just theological issues. They're just ecclesiastical issues. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your heart. Then there's selfishness, you know, um, the desire to make everyone think the way we do. Uh, and that can lead to a censoriousness, a, a criticism, uh, uh, demanding that people... There, there's a scene in a, in a movie uh, that I saw a few years back. It was set during the Civil War. And, and uh, now, you know, I don't know if you're a Yankee or a rebel, and that really doesn't matter, but one of, the, one of the Southern sympathizers made the observation that those people in Boston won't be happy until everybody thinks exactly the same way they do. And that, from their perspective, that was what the war was all about. Someone was telling them, everybody has to think exactly alike. Now, maybe they were completely self-deluded. But there is that tendency. I'm not going to be really comfortable with you unless you say it just the way I say it, unless you think the same things are important that I think, and so on and so forth. And so there, there's that idea. Everybody needs to think like me. And then as this kind of stuff goes on, of course, they're quarreling where two or more sides driven by pride all want the same selfish thing. Not everybody can be in charge of a session. Not everybody can be in charge of a Christian school. Not everybody can be in charge of a denomination. So whose side is going to be in the driver's seat? And there's quarrels and, and struggles over that. And then the bitterness and the hatred and the vengefulness that is so much a part of our fallen uh, human lives. Uh, that's the festering fruit of the conflict that, uh, that I've described above. So in reality, it's sin that makes our differences so non-negotiable. It's that pride, that selfishness, that quarrelsomeness, that vengefulness that makes our sins 
non or makes our differences non-negotiable. And that leads to fear and suspicion. It leads to partisanship and argumentativeness. And it's an infection that the church cannot easily rid itself of. You know, there's an interesting verse in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20. You know, you read 1 Corinthians, the church is in trouble. Paul admonishes them and exhorts them. And then you read 2 Corinthians, and some things seem to be improving. But then Paul writes, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And that's when things are improving. And those fears were not unfounded. And Paul, as far as I know it, never even got to the Presbytery of Southern California. (laughs) Oh, cheap shot, I know, I know. But I'm in the Presbytery, so I'm... By the way, Alan, I I was thinking earlier when you were saying you don't want us complaining about the OPC, so I'm not going to complain, but I hope a little healthy self-criticism will be in order through the course of the week. But I just don't want you to say, boy, those complainers, you know. (laughs) Okay, number three, healing humanity's wounds partially. Now, I talked about these these forms of disunity, and, and you can think about them, but One of the things that perpetuates disunity, particularly uh, as we're thinking about disunity in the church, I think is a misunderstanding of the distinction between visible and invisible church. And it it leads us often not to work at overcoming the disunities and the conflicts that may be there. Christians who read Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, for example, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You hear that prayer and you understand on a deep level as a believer that the church is one and that that unity should come to outward expression in some way. So believers, if they're paying attention to the Bible, have a kind of a deep instinct toward unity. Or think about what Jesus said in his discourse on himself as the good shepherd in John 10 when he alluded to the fact in verse 16, that he had other sheep that were not from this fold, from, the, uh, from among the Jewish people. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So on the one hand, we have this instinct for unity. We think that's the way it ought to be. But on the other hand, the evidence of the disunity is all around us. It's a fact of life. And it's become popular in the fragmented tradition of um, evangelical Protestantism particularly, though it's not limited to that. I think even Rome, though they deny it, have a lot of the same kind of problem. To take refuge in the concept of the invisible church as the locus of unity. That is, although we may be divided 
in many, many ways, some sinful, some not, in our earthly experience, we're all part of this invisible church, and that invisible church dwells in perfect unity. I mean, I have to admit that there were years when I found that uh, idea pretty compelling, and I used it as an argument against visible unions. In my mind, uh, what it took to bring churches together was way too risky theologically, and I think I was right sometimes, and I think I was, I was wrong sometimes, but I could always reassure myself that, that we're part of this invisible church, and so we are all one. Um, and, of course, we can sing the songs about unity even while we practice the disunity. Um, and, and so that idea that unity belongs to the invisible church, and so no matter what's going on in the visible church, um, it, it's not so bad. The invisible church is understood as a dual, in a dualistic, almost a platonic manner, and it is unified by definition. And so our membership in that church allows us to enjoy, in a kind of serenity, a unity which practically, uh, which practical reality belies on every quarter. At worst, this kind of idea of invisible unity, um, at worst it erases any concern we might have for and paralyzes any attempt, however faltering, we might make to manifest the unity of the body of Christ in time and space. But at at very best, I think it makes disunity easier to live with, uh, easier to swallow. John Murray argues cogently against the typical evangelical understanding of the concept of the invisible church, I didn't copy it for you. I probably should have brought that along too. But if you have his collected writings in volume one, he has an article entitled The Church, Its Definition in Terms of Visible and Invisible Invalid. Um, And he really argues that this notion, that this common notion of the invisible church is an abuse of the biblical data, the biblical concept of the church. And he goes uh, uh, into a lot of detail just showing how the, the New Testament in particular talks about the church, and that even when it's talking about the church in its kind of unity, it's always in connection with the understanding that the church exists in local communities of believing people met together for worship and service and mutual accountability and so forth. Um, Let me uh, share a word from uh, the great John Murray. Uh, He says this thesis what he's arguing for, that this uh, distinction is invalid, has deep practical significance. In the absence of unity and fellowship in the denomination, or I would say even between denominations, comfort is derived from the unity and fellowship supposed to exist in the church invisible. The concept of the church invisible is, to say the least, far too precarious upon which to build um, for the fulfillment of the obligation incumbent upon us to foster unity and fellowship in the church of God. Suffice it to ask, where in the New Testament do we find the invisible church as an institution in which we may exercise in any concrete and practical way the fellowship uh, claimed? 
When Paul enjoined upon believers all diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, verse 3, he was surely thinking of the relations that obtain within the church in its visible character and expression. It should be apparent how alien to this obligation is escape to the idea of the church invisible. It is to desert the practical for an outlet without warrant and one that fails to provide the means for keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Strictly speaking, it is not proper to speak of the visible church. According to Scripture, we should speak of the church and conceive of it as that visible entity that exists and functions in accord with the institution of Christ at its head, the church that is the body of Christ, indwelt and directed by the Holy Spirit, consisting of those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, manifested in the congregations of the faithful, and finally, the church glorious, holy, and without blemish. So I think that we need to be careful about that concept of invisible unity, um, especially if that uh, cools our enthusiasm and our zeal for promoting the visible unity of the church as we are able. Uh, one more point, which I don't think was in the outline when I submitted it for the camp book. Um, do you have four points or three points? Oh, okay. What do you know? I was more with it than I thought at that point. Diversity or division, unity or uniformity. As we search for the target, not to say the ideal, but the target of peace and unity in the body of Christ, we ought to be careful to understand that unity does not require uniformity and that diversity does not have to result in division. That's why I laid that groundwork at first because we need to be able to understand that even when we are sanctified to a more mature level of unity in Christ, as our sins are dealt with more, we're still going to have disunities that we're going to have to cope with and contend with, and we don't have to make our target, our ideal, the fact that everybody is going to do the same thing in the same way. And we don't need to fear that every kind of diversity is going to necessarily lead to division or, or worse, uh, apostasy. The challenge of diversity is what you need to keep in mind. You know, um, uh, when, a, when a child encounters an obstacle, uh, children are different. Some of them are more adventurous. Uh, and some children are fairly cautious. Our oldest son was that way. He always wanted to kind of anticipate what he was getting into a few steps down the line before he, he jumped or before he started. And then we had our second son who was sort of damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, you know, and, and will chance the consequences, to use a Calvinistic phrase. Um, <clears throat> And so when those children were confronted by an obstacle or a challenge, one would be inclined to back off and turn away and think it through and maybe give up the whole idea, and the other one would just sort of launch in and, and see what happened. Well, when we face diversity and, and these kind of things, they are a challenge. The question is, how are we going to respond to them? Are we going to become fearful and suspicious and back away now, again, I'm not arguing in this little uh, picture for not thinking things through. We ought to think things through. But do we respond to a challenge with, uh, as a threat that discourages us? 
or do we rather take a challenge as an opportunity uh, and, and try to use the very challenge as, a, as an, uh, uh, an instigation for our activity? We certainly learn from the creation around us um, that it is the glory of God's work that everything is not the same. You know, Gerard Manley Hopkins praise the Lord for dappled things, things that come in different colors and different shades. And uh, we like that, don't we? I mean, if, if, uh, if you go to a restaurant and they brought you a menu with one entree, you'd say, what's up with this? I like choices. Right? Now, in America, sometimes you get overchoice, overload. You don't know what to choose. There's so many choices. And, but, but that kind of diversity, that kind of richness, that makes the world go round, as we say. How many are your works, says the psalmist? How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. He's just overwhelmed at the richness of God's works of creation and providence. So, we ought to expect that God is not going to erase diversity as if it's an inferior expression of His glorious will. So, we have to take the challenge as an opportunity. Now, I think uh, a parallel, perhaps, that will help us get a hold of this is the experience that married couples sometimes go through as they learn that differences are an opportunity for complementarity in their relationship. You know, when you're young and you're in love and you're starry-eyed and you, and you love this girl and you love this guy because you just have so much in common and it's so easy to talk to each other and you, you love the same things and you enjoy it. It's just great. And then you get married and you find out all of the ways in which you are different from one another. And that's where the challenge comes in. Okay, we thought we were just alike. Now we are painfully aware that we are not alike anymore. So which way are we going to go? Are we going to say, oh no, I made a terrible mistake. I didn't marry the girl of my dream. She's not exactly like me. I better get rid of this one and get another one that will be just like me. Or the husband, you know, we can tit for tat. Or do we say, okay, now we see the reality of diversity and it's going to be a good thing for us that we are not exactly the same. And we're enriched by the differences in the couple. Well, you know, some, uh, some uh, couples make that transition fairly well and some hit it like a brick wall. And usually it has to do with the self-centeredness of the people involved. Remember old Henry Higgins? Why can't a woman be more like a man? You know, we just figure if our wives were just like us, everything would be fine. Wrong. And some of you old married types have come to rejoice in the very things that you found so threatening when they first kind of came into focus in the early days of your marriage. I mean, just think about it. When you look about your church and you see the different kind of people that are there, well, of course, you know, the OPC as a denomination isn't characterized by as wide a diversity perhaps as we would like. But let's just say, and you, so you've got people of different races, different backgrounds, different economic groups. I mean, do you consider that threatening? Does that make you nervous? Does that make you within your church gravitate toward the people who are most like you? You know, you've, you've got your family, you've got your children, and you like nothing better than to talk about your kids. And so you gravitate with the people who have kids. 
And these single men that buzz around the fringes of your church looking for wives, you just don't know what to do with those guys. You'd like to slap them. But you sure don't want to sit down and talk with them. They're just, they're in a different world from you. They're not like you. Now that's a kind of a low-key, kind of laughable, innocent, but you know, some people in our churches feel like they're very, very much on the outside because they don't have children. And if they're not married with children, they don't have an easy access into our family-centered, rightly so, uh, family-appreciating congregation. What about people from different races? Or people who speak different languages? We have this Lao congregation that meets um, at Bayview, and, and they are officially part of our church, and a few of them are communicant members. But we're up against it all the time, trying to get over this, this barrier between language and culture. But again, I'm not going to university. Do we say, this is wonderful. We are going to be so much richer because of this diversity, or are we going to take it as a terrifying threat that leads us to fear and suspicion? That kind of fear and suspicion can cause us to insist on uniformity in the name of unity. It becomes a matter of control. We have to have everything in its proper place, whether we're talking about people or theological ideas or ecclesiastical practices. Everything has to be in its right uh, place. It's the kind of our, our version of those people up in Boston won't be happy until everybody thinks exactly the same way we do. But that kind of forced agreement crowds out real freedom, and ultimately I think it's detrimental to growth and maturity and true unity. Again, there's a parallel in our family life as we think about raising our children. There's no one-size-fits-all for kids, and you know that. And you can either chafe because you can't make the second kid behave as well as the first kid, or vice versa. You know, God gives you your trials in different orders, um, or your boys and your girls and all that kind of stuff. Or you can say, my job is to be as creative and imaginative as making this child into a godly person who is going to be in many ways different from his brother or sister when they're a godly adult as well. Some parents just think, if I can't get them all to be the same, I'm a failure. Well, that's the same thing that can happen in the church. If I can't get everybody to agree with the way I want to say it, or the way I want to do it, then it's hopeless. We're going to fall apart. But again, that kind of enforced uniformity can be as much an expression of our own sinful pride and selfishness as the feared deviations from the assumed norm might be. Denominationally, it can lead to the unchurching of any group that does not really belong. I mean, officially and formally, Rome has done this for years. You are not a church unless you are in fellowship with the Bishop of Rome. But it has its evangelical parallels as well. You know, we jokingly refer to our initials, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, OPC, as only perfect church. Um, and, uh, but oftentimes in the way we, and, and I'm not taking any, I mean, I love the OPC, and I think uh, it's the best we've got going for us. But the line between that kind of thankful, humble appreciation for what God has given and the kind of party 
pride that can then make us look at, I mean, I just think of the way I looked at my evangelical, baptistic, dispensational, Arminian brothers and sisters when I first came out of that world into the Reformed faith. I mean, I'd have to say I despised most of them. And I wouldn't do anything, I wouldn't sing their songs anymore, I wouldn't, I, I, just, I just wanted to wipe that part of my past out. And over the years, to come back, and I still don't agree with any of the theology, but I know those people love the Lord Jesus. They worked hard at sending out missionaries. They were sacrificial in their service to others in the body of Christ. And my first reaction was a very sinful reaction. But at the time, I would have said, this is about theology. And that's all it's about. It's not true. I wonder, has our Presbyterianism, which as a form of church government, in my judgment, so wonderfully preserves the equal ultimacy of the one and the many, has our Presbyterianism, our Orthodox Presbyterianism, been equally effective in promoting unity and diversity in theological convictions? within limits, obviously, we're a confessional church, in personal piety and the expressions thereof, and in corporate worship. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I wonder about that. Well, our unity with one another, and I know I'm past time, so, but I told you you used up my time, so I'll, real quick here. You need the Bromley quote if you have it in front of you, because I want to close with this. Our unity with one another is not something that we create ourselves. We are one in Christ. It flows from our union with Him. G.W. Bromley argues, We must find in Jesus Christ Himself, incarnate and crucified, as well as resurrected and ascended, the basis and center of the church's unity, its full and indestructible actualization, and therefore the one secure and triumphant answer to the false, if very real, assaults of disunity. The fact is that Christ himself in his person and work is already the accomplished unity of the church. It is because of this that the church knows that it is already one and can work and pray for the visible manifestation of its unity. Christ must not merely be assumed as a kind of background reality. He himself must always stand in the foreground. If Christ is accepted as the underlying and ultimate basis of unity, then the implications of this fact must be grasped and the fact itself must dominate all discussion and action. We do not mean only that Christ is a unifying factor. That is, we are all united because we believe in him and profess to follow him and hope to live and reign with him. For at root, this usually means that the unity is still to be found in us namely in our common faith and discipleship and hope. What is meant is quite strictly that Jesus Christ is the unity of his people. He is not merely the focus of unity, he is also its substance. The unity of the church is already an accomplished fact in Christ. We do not and cannot find our unity in Christ unless we are prepared to find it in him not merely as the founder of Christianity or the focus of the spiritual fellowship, but as our incarnate, crucified, and ascended substitute. It is when unity in Christ is seen and accepted as a real fact that we have the quiet assurance in face of disunity 
that no attempt at purely human unification can ever give. In Christ, the will of God is already done. His kingdom has come. The prayer for unity is heard and answered. All further action can proceed upon this given fact, not in an an evasion of reality, but in a recognition of the true reality. Not to believe this, and therefore to think that some other unity must be found or created, is to live as though the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ had not taken place or had not taken place for us and can therefore only lead to the greater disunity. To believe it, and therefore to be content to find our unity achieved and given as as a real fact in Christ, is to find the solid and enduring answer to the challenge of disunity, and therefore to set ourselves on the way to the defeat of its damaging and despairing, if impotent, counter-thrusts. For when unity in Christ is seen and accepted as a real fact, Our quiet assurance is also an impulsion to action. Unity, no less than wisdom and sanctification, is our true being. It cannot remain an unexpressed reality. It demands outworking in the complementary action of those who are willing to see their independent reality judged and set aside and to find their new and true reality in the one who took their place. This action itself cannot be independent. It must find its origin and power and goal wholly and continually in Christ. Otherwise, it can only lead again to fresh division, to the disintegration which is the inevitable lot of sinful life and action outside of Christ. But it really is an action. It is the living out of the life in Christ. And therefore, it must and will find its provisional but very real expression in genuine unification, thus attesting to the world and to itself that it is found in Christ a superior and compelling unity. The church is one church, whatever the facts may seem to say, because Christ is one and because he is one for the church and because the only true life of the church is that which which it has in him. This is our sole but soul-sufficient answer to the problem of disunity in a sinful order. This is the solid basis of our confession of unity and the starting point for all our attempts at its practical expression. The unity of the church exists already and indestructibly in Jesus Christ. It is one in him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for a growing conviction that Jesus is not only the focus and the source of our unity, but that he is the reality, the substance of it as well. And we thank you that that will encourage us, that that unity is real and that it does exist, but that it will also drive us to work hard to overcome the divisions, the barriers, those that are part of the natural created order and those that are a specific result of sin to see as much as possible. And Lord, we're not Pollyannas. We're not living with our heads in the clouds. We know that even when we want to be at peace with others, sometimes they don't want to be at peace with us. Sometimes we're willing to discuss theological differences and others are completely closed to it. So we're not trying to be naive, Lord, but to the degree that it is possible for us, give us the impulse, the drive, the zeal to seek that visible, historical, 
flesh and blood expression of the unity that is ours fully and finally in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're just